Hey everyone, and welcome to the March 2022 edition of Right on Prime. My name is Heidi James, and I'm joined by Dr. Adrian Sleem this month. Good to see you, Adrian. You too, Heidi James. How are you? I am doing just super thanks. Adrian, I know you are a huge baseball fan, so this is a big month for you, right? Yeah, end of the month is a regular season starts. I'm really excited. My wife doesn't like it as much because she loses <laughs> me in the evenings. But yeah, super excited. It's a Jays year this year. That's my prediction. Let's go Blue Jays! Did you see any interesting cases recently that you'd like to share with us? I sure did. It's a case where I didn't immediately know the answer. And it was one of those that forces me to kind of go look it up and figure it out. And I think I said this before, but if I have to learn something, it's nice if we all learn something together. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Every day is a school day in medicine, isn't it? So tell us about the case, Adrian. Yeah, so this patient I saw was a few weeks ago. He was a gentleman in his 70s, and he came in because he was having a painful wrist. It's been going on for about a week or so. He says he didn't hit it, he didn't fall, he has no trauma. He had no fever, he had no other joints that were involved. He was otherwise feeling well, it was just getting worse, and he was having a hard time doing the things that he normally does, like he was saying he was having a hard time gardening because of it. So he had been taking some Tylenol, but it hadn't really helped at all. And then he said he actually had something similar to this in the past, it was a few years ago, and he saw a doctor, and the doctor told him at the time that he thought it was pseudogout. And what did this gentleman's wrist look like? So, it was swollen, it was mildly red, it was a bit warm as well. He was able to range it, but it was obviously painful, especially like in the extremes of flexion and extension. And everything else was normal. Otherwise, he had no other uh, synovitis on any other joints. So did you send him for any investigations or do much of a workup? Or did you just look at him and say, oh, yes, that's pseudogout. Carry on. <laughs> yeah, with my, uh, my pseudogout vision. <laughs> no, I, I saw him in the emergency department. So I had the luxury of being able to get labs and x-ray right away. So set off some labs. His CBC was normal. He had no white count. His inflammatory markers, they were all elevated. And we did an x-ray of his wrist. And I mean, it looked normal to me. There was nothing obvious uh, jumping out at me. So I thought about trying to get some fluid out of his wrist, but I just didn't think there was going to be a whole lot there. Again, I'm in the emergency department, so I have the luxury of having a bedside ultrasound. So I had a quick peek with the ultrasound, and I really didn't see much in the way of an effusion. So I didn't even attempt an arthrocentesis at this point. Okay, so based on this information, what did you think was going on? Did you think it was pseudogout? Yeah, I thought definitely it was a possibility. And I went through my differential for, you know, monoarticular joint pain. The big diagnosis I really didn't want to miss was a septic arthritis. And I really didn't think, you know, it was a septic joint. He didn't have any systemic symptoms. He was able to range it okay. He didn't have a white blood cell count, which obviously doesn't rule out a septic joint, I know, but I felt it was much less likely. So then I'm thinking, yeah, you know, this is probably pseudogout. And at the time, kind of my primitive way of thinking about pseudogout is that it's kind of like gout, but instead of affecting the first MTP, it actually attacks the wrists. So I tell him, yeah, you know, I think this is pseudogout. Why don't you take some regular anti-inflammatories? I think that should take care of it. And then he says, you know what? I can't take NSAIDs. I can't remember exactly why he couldn't. He had some contraindication, but he's like, I I can't take NSAIDs. You know, is there anything else I can take? And he said, the last time they gave me something and it worked really well. Can you give me whatever that was? So I'm thinking, you know, maybe it was that colchicine. Maybe did they give him steroids? I really didn't know. I had to go look it up. I ended up giving him a prescription for some colchicine. And then he looked at it and he goes, yeah, that's what they gave me last time. I think that's what it was. And it worked really, really well. Oh, okay, good, good. So your instincts were right there. And it's funny, your story is reminding me how much I know about gout, but how little I feel I know about pseudogout. It's like the lesser known sibling in the arthritis. 
Yeah, exactly. Like gout gets all the attention. It's sort of like that. Uh, I'm going to refrain from using the Rodney Dangerfield joke. You know, it gets no respect compared to its older brother, gout. That's how you tell a joke. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I got a pretty good handle on gout, but I really don't have much of a handle on pseudogout. And I don't think we're alone. When I was, you know, researching this segment, there's really not a whole lot of information out there. There's not a lot of studies or RCTs or anything like that. There is, however, a really good review article. It's from the New England Journal of Medicine, 2016. It was by Rosenthal et al. And first off, the first thing I learned, the term pseudogout has kind of fallen out of favor. The preferred and more descriptive term is actually acute calcium pyrophosphate crystal arthritis, or acute CPP crystal arthritis. Because remember, it results from deposition of calcium pyrophosphate crystals in the joint. But pseudogout is still commonly used, and I think it's still totally legit to continue using it. I'm still going to refer to it as pseudogout. Okay, yeah, that new name makes sense. And this condition is similar to gout because we do get this intense inflammatory arthritis that's caused by these crystal deposits. But in this case, the crystals are calcium pyrophosphate as opposed to urate, which is what we see in gout. Right, exactly. And because it results from calcium crystal deposition, it can be associated with some secondary causes. And as you might expect, hypercalcemia, hyperparathyroidism are a common risk factor for acute CBP arthritis. And that, you know, makes sense intuitively. A few other risk factors for pseudogout are hypomagnesemia and hemochromatosis. And then also age and past joint injury are also risk factors. Kate, your case speaks to this a little bit, but could you go over in a little bit more detail the clinical manifestations of acute CPP arthritis and how that does compare to gout? Yeah, so both gout and acute CPP arthritis can cause, you know, an acute arthritis, right? So you get an acutely red, warm, swollen joint, but acute CPP arthritis tends to affect the wrists more commonly as well as the knees. So it rarely affects the first MTP like, like gout does. Also, symptom onset tends to be a bit longer in pseudogout. It can last sometimes for weeks as opposed to like the very acute and very short course that you'll get with an acute gout attack. And then the acute dietary triggers that you'll see in gout, like, you know, if a patient is drinking more alcohol than usual or eating more meat or shellfish, those don't precipitate a pseudogout attack. But recent surgery or joint trauma, that can precipitate a pseudogout attack. What do we see on the joint fluid analysis? First off, I should say that joint fluid analysis is really the way to confirm this diagnosis, and it's also a way to exclude the other pathologies, specifically septic arthritis and gout. So for your question, pseudogout gives positive birefringent rhomboid-shaped crystals, and gout will show negative birefringent needle-like crystals. You got that? I do. I've got it. Down pat. All right. And then while we're talking about investigations, I should also add a few more things. So number one. Inflammatory markers like ESR and CRP are going to probably be elevated in acute CPP arthritis, but it doesn't really help you to distinguish it from like septic arthritis or gout because it'll probably be elevated in those conditions as well. Number two. X-rays may show a finding, something called chondrocalcinosis, which is basically calcifications of the cartilage. And this is going to be tricky to pick up, and sometimes radiologists might not even report on it. So I don't think we could rely on it 100% to make the diagnosis. And then also to complicate matters a bit more, a significant amount of patients will have chondrocalcinosis on their x-ray without the clinical syndrome of CPP crystal disease. So it doesn't appear to be highly sensitive or specific, but if you see this in the right clinical context, it can be helpful. Number three. And then number three, if you have a patient with pseudogout and they're less than 60 years old, you should consider getting a calcium level, a PTH level, magnesium and ferritin because of that association with those secondary causes, the hypercalcemia, hypomagnesemia, 
and hemochromatosis. Okay, that's a good review. Now let's talk about treatments. And you did say earlier that the usual treatments for gout also can be helpful for acute CPP arthritis. Yes. So there's not a whole lot of studies on this out there, not a whole lot of RCTs or anything like that. But that uh, review article that I mentioned earlier, they have intraarticular steroid injections as their first line treatment for this. So intraarticular steroid injections might not be feasible for everybody, especially if you're in the office, it might be hard to do, especially if the patient has a big red swollen joint and you're worried that there's a possibility this could be a septic joint, I would be really hesitant to inject uh, steroids into that joint. So if that's not feasible, their next line is colchicine. And then interestingly, they have NSAIDs as a third line treatment behind colchicine and intraarticular steroid injections. And then their fourth line is prednisone. And that's sort of the last resort if colchicine or NSAIDs are not options. What about for the chronic form of this condition? Yeah, so it's pretty similar to the acute form. They have, again, intraarticular steroid injections at the top, low-dose colchicine, NSAIDs, and then they even have low-dose prednisone as sort of like fourth line if the patient is intolerant to those other modalities there. And then they have kind of bottom of the line, like things like methotrexate or hydroxychloroquine. But to be honest, if my patient's getting to that point, I'm probably referring them on to rheumatology. And then a lot of these patients may actually require joint replacement at some point, just because it's such a chronic debilitating disease. All right, Adrian, that was really interesting. Thank you. Yeah, you know, it was an interesting case, Heidi James. I always like learning. Indeed. And speaking of learning, Adrian, let's just take a sec to talk about her batting lineup for the rest of the show. And let's hear it for the home team. Of course, we have Stephen Ken in the 10 with the 10 PCMA papers. We also have Hobie, who joins me to rant about interactions with pharmaceutical representatives. Jake Anderson is here to talk about all things transfusion. Vanessa joins us to talk about ovarian cancer screening. And then there is, of course, a rural medicine talk about a bean that got somewhere that it should not have gotten. All right. I can't wait to see how this one plays out, Heidi. Stay tuned. Good things coming your way. Coming to you from semi-scenic Loma Linda, California, it's Reviews and Perspectives with Dr. Hobart Lee. All right, we're back with Hobart Lee. Nice to see you, Hobie. How are you doing, Heidi? I am doing swell, thanks. And I am glad we're chatting today because I've got a bit of a bee in my bonnet. Oh, about what? About family physician interactions with pharmaceutical reps. Oh, no. You brought up on many occasions that this is something that you wanted to talk about. So I brought it up today because I want to talk about not just about these interactions, but exploring how we are influenced by these interactions. It's, it's a common experience, I think, for all family physicians to interact with pharmaceutical reps. So let's let's jump into it. I would love to tell a quick story about an uh, interaction with Big Pharma. Oh, absolutely. Please do. Yeah. So I was a resident. And there was a drug dinner by a, we'll call them a major cholesterol medication-making pharmacy <laughs> drug. And they were going to hold it at, at the most famous steakhouse in our town. Ooh. So I had never been to a pharmacy drug rep dinner, and I knew it was not good. I was kind of like, ah, oh, this is not a good idea. I signed up because I was desperate. I was poor, and I was desperate, <laughs> and I needed a meal. And so I went, and we're getting served these really expensive steaks, and they're going through their little presentation. and. I can't tell you how dirty I felt. I was eating a steak, but I couldn't enjoy it. <laughs> I, I'm sure the pharmacy reps were saying like, hey, everyone looks like they're having a good time. What's that little boy in the corner who's crying while he's eating his <laughs> steak? What's, what's wrong with him? And I was like, 
oh, I can't do this. This is not the right thing to do. And then I would like take another bite. I'd be like, oh, but this thing is so good. Oh, oh, but this is not right. I don't want to listen to what he's saying. Make it stop. Make it stop. I was so conflicted. Uh, and, and after I did that, I was like, I can't do this again. I was like, I can't talk to these people. I can't go to these dinners. Like, no matter what they offer me, it, it's not right. It's not right. <laughs> so, but that was my one time. I took a drug dinner and I, and I was like, after I felt so dirty, I was like, I gotta take a shower. <laughs> so, Hobie, tell us how you really feel about a... <laughs> yeah, well, so I'm saying... There's a segment right there. <laughs> yeah, so, so how are we going to give this conversation a fair shake when I think you and I may be on the same side of this discussion? I think you were are firmly on one side and I'm mostly there with you mostly I've had more than one steak dinner I can figure out how to deal with my guilt I guess it's uh... (laughs) well I mean this segment you know we've changed the name to rants and perspectives so Uh I (laughs) but I think we'll need to turn to the literature to maybe balance uh, our discussion a little bit because clearly there's some strong feels here (laughs) yeah time for another segment of Hobie's Rants and Perspectives Let's clarify some terms here first. So when we are saying pharmacy reps, we're specifically meaning individuals who come to our offices or clinics who talk to us about pharmaceuticals. And they could be medications or devices. They go by a whole host of different titles, but for the sake of simplicity, we'll kind of call them pharma reps or pharmaceutical reps. Sometimes they drop off samples that we can give to our patients. Sometimes they give us a book or they might want to just chat with us either in person or virtually. And especially in the past, there was the all-ubiquitous pharmaceutical rep lunch event where they would provide lunch and learning. And then, you know, while this is more rare now, in the past, reps would take doctors on trips or golfing adventures or tickets to sporting events and, and all that kind of stuff was part of what they did. Yeah, there's definitely those big things, but let's not forget about the small things like the pens. Oh my gosh, so many drug company pens. I often wonder if they have writing instrument subsidiaries as part of their companies. So how many of your pens would you say have a label of some kind of medication or device on them? Probably all of them. <laughs> yeah, mine, mine too. And you know what? I don't know where they come from. Yeah. And I suspect it's that I lift pens from the hospital, so it's probably all of my colleagues' pens. Uh, yeah. But it's probably how I'm aware of drug companies is from these random pens on my desk. I like to say, if you were an alien and you landed on Earth, and you happened to land inside a medical conference, and you just saw the people going around, you would say, man, there is a giant pen shortage in the world. And uh, <laughs> the, obviously, the currency by which you buy food and do commerce is are these little sticks that have things written on them, because <laughs> these people are going around, and they're grabbing handfuls from every single booth, and they're shoving <laughs> them in these bags. And, and they obviously have hundreds of them, but still feel the need to collect more. <laughs> It's obviously very, very important that they have these things, right? It's like, I just, I just like, you it just watch the behavior of, I mean, and we're physicians and we make wonderful money and it's not like any of us are trying to put food on the table and wondering, but yet when it comes to pens, we're like, man, never too many. I need to do one more pass through this conference hall, and just get a couple more pens. It like, drives me crazy. <laughs> yeah. So let's, getting back on topic, let's be clear that this is not a full-out attack on the industry. And we would not be where we are as physicians without the advances in medicines and therapeutics that have come from their work and their endeavors. Let's talk about the ability to develop a COVID vaccine in a really shortened time frame is a good reminder. But what we are worried about is how our interactions with them alter how we treat patients and what we prescribe ultimately to our patients. 
Right. And I, I think it comes down to influence, Hobie, because you and I both feel and the research would indicate that we are potentially being influenced in how we practice medicine is being changed. So why don't we take a look at the papers just to see if interacting with pharmaceutical reps changes what we prescribe and how we practice medicine? Yeah. So there was an article, the BMJ Open published a big systematic review on this topic in 2017, and they found, quote, a consistent association between physician interactions with the pharmaceutical industry and inappropriately increased prescribing rates, lower prescribing quality, and or increased prescription cost, unquote. Okay. So listening to that, that uh, does not reassure me that these interactions do not impact the care I give my patients. And this is what I care about is, are these interactions influencing how I care for my patients? And I think this says we are influenced, but Hobie, are we aware that we're influenced? That's a different question. Yes, that's right. And I think this is the fun of human nature and the brilliance of sales, right? Because ultimately, reps are salespeople, right? I have no beef against pharmaceutical reps. I often say they are working a job and a career like the rest of us. They all have mortgages to pay like the rest of us. So they are doing their job to the best of their ability. But they're salespeople. They have pitches and tactics that enable us to think that we are not being influenced when we really are. They are really, really good at their job. And studies show lots of some of these concerns, that doctors are not able to distinguish between promotional material and scientific evidence, partly because they look so similar now. It's not just like a glossy brochure that says, prescribe our drug. They package it so it looks like a scientific journal article. A lot of people think that the info being presented by reps are important instruments for enhancing scientific knowledge, and they think that the information is not biased in some ways. Some doctors believe their colleagues are more susceptible But the interesting thing is they feel like they are themselves are not. So if you ask the question, do you think your colleagues might be susceptible to influence by pharmaceutical representatives? The answer is, oh, yes, of course. And then you ask the same question, well, what about you? They say, oh, no, no, I'm unbiased. I I understand the evidence. I know how to read journals. Like, they're not going to get one by me, which I think is funny because it's like asking a question, do you think you're an above average doctor? Well, if everyone raises their hands, then clearly it's not a valid question, right? Like We are terrible at understanding how we can be influenced and what our true capacity to distinguish between what is real and what is marketing. I think that is a huge challenge for us in the physician industry. And I think certainly Big Pharma has recognized that and uses that to their advantage. Yeah, yeah, they most certainly do. And I even saw a study that showed a strong correlation. I mean, not causation, but still strong correlation between the number of gifts a doc Mm. gets from pharmaceutical reps and the belief that they are not influenced. So the more (laughs) we get, the more we're not influenced, according to our brains. (laughs) Well, and that's probably back to our free promotional pen discussion, right? Pens cost drug companies nothing, but they know the more, I mean, there's a reason they say, take two, take three, take as many as you want, right? Because they know the more they give it to us, the more we feel indebted to them, whether we believe it or not. Yeah, yeah. And samples are an example of this, Hobie. Yes. We have a well-stocked sample cabinet at work, and we don't see reps at work, but they're still sending us samples. And I got to say, I like a few things about samples. I like that I can give medications to my patients who might not Mm. otherwise be able to afford medications. And that's what I really like about it. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I know that's probably, I know you're sitting there like... Not judging me, but I know you're having... I'm judging you. Don't don't worry about that. I'm totally (laughs) judging you right now. Not at all. Not at all. I know that these samples are usually the latest drugs in a class and probably not the best medication in their class. 
Mm-hmm. And I also know that I don't know as much about this medication as I do about the ones I usually prescribe. That's and right. I know that I can't necessarily guarantee my patient that I'm going to be able to give them this medication forever because it's going to be very dependent on samples. Mm-hmm. And yes, I know that physicians providing medications directly to their patients takes this great resource and safety net called the pharmacist out of the equation, which is probably not <laughs> yeah. good. But, right. but dang it, it's nice to walk over to the cabinet and grab a medication that I think is going to help my patient. Yes, that's all true, Heidi. But <laughs> I mean, for a long time, our clinic had a sample closet as well. And it took me many years to convince our clinic that this was not a good idea. Partly because samples are gifts, right? And gifts are a way to create indebtedness to somebody, right? And so the pharmaceutical company doesn't do this out of pure altruism. It's not 100%, oh, we just want our patients to get good stuff. And so here, we're going to give you all this expensive medicine for free. They do it because they know it links you to the pharmaceutical company. It links that patient to that pharmaceutical company. And the doctors who accept samples, they know are more likely to prescribe that trade name drug and fewer generics to other patients who are able to afford it and insurances will cover it. And so ultimately, it is part of their sales and marketing strategy. Now, Hobie, not everybody's going to share our viewpoints here. And a lot of listeners interact with pharmaceutical reps. And I'd like to take just a minute to review what information a pharmaceutical rep can accurately provide us. That, in conjunction with our own research and understanding, will help us decide if a medication is appropriate for any particular patient. And back when I used to see reps, I found that this was most easily done by using the STEPS mnemonic. Are you familiar with that one, Hobie? Yeah, so I think that is a great way to sort of think about if you are going to talk to a rep and you say, well, how do I kind of think about how to frame a discussion so I can get the information that I need? The STEPS mnemonic is a great way to sort of think about that. Steps. The S stands for safety. The T stands for tolerability. The E stands for effectiveness. The P stands for price. And the final S in steps stands for simplicity. Like, is the drug easy to take? Yeah, so that became my approach to interacting with reps or listening to talks. It's just like these were the the things I wanted to, to take away from it. They can provide some information as long as you recognize, like, what is the scope of what they're trying to provide and what is the slant at which they're trying to provide that. And I think that STEPS algorithm can often help clarify some of that. And I think ultimately just recognizing what their goal is in terms of the conversation, I think, is an important thing. But ultimately, I would probably say after this conversation, I'm not really changing what I do. You mean nothing to me. Which is to... Really, I sometimes see the reps around and, you know, I try to be kind and cordial to them, but I'm not really interested in getting information from them. I I feel like there are places like Right on Prime where I can get plenty of great information (laughs) that is unbiased. Yeah. I can trust that where the information is coming from better. Yeah. And and for me, too, it's very practical. It's just I would rather spend that time seeing a patient and helping them out rather than having something sold to me. So Yes, that's right. Yeah, my patients are better served by my seeing them than by seeing a drug rep. To me, that's what our patients are wanting, right? They're expecting when they see their doctor that we're not just selling stuff like a salesman or being influenced unduly by outside influences, but that we really have the patient's best interest at heart and then we're weighing the evidence and really making the right decision, not based on what some rep is telling us or what the new and latest greatest thing is, but what actually is going to help the patient get better. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And 
I think we're both firmly on one side of this argument, and you further off to the side than me, but we're... <laughs> yes, I'm, I'm way off on the deep end. You can't even see me anymore. I'm off on so far off to one side. There's no turning back, baby. Yeah, maybe uh, in the future we can talk more about pharmaceutical industries' influence in medicine, but this has been a good starting point, and uh, I love venting about our interactions with pharmaceutical reps. <laughs> Until next time, Heidi. <laughs> okay, talk to you later, Hobie. Bye. man in cardiac arrest and our building just lost power all right give me jumper cables rubber gloves 3,000 grams of soul medrol stack what are you macgyver no i'm the generalist i'm back with jake anderson and today we're talking about another aspect of hospital medicine and that is transfusions first we're going to look at transfusion thresholds and then we're going to briefly touch on transfusion reactions Hey, Heidi. Good to be here. Now, Jake, we've been doctors long enough to have already seen several changes to the threshold at which we should transfuse our patients. So much so that it's actually kind of hard to stay on top of what's the current recommendation. Yeah, actually, I sort of am nervous because you're four hours ahead of me, uh, time zone wise. And so there's a chance that you have more updated information and a different target for these just based on how quickly this stuff changes. Hey boss, we got a message from the East Coast. It says, this just in, transfusion threshold is now 6.5. P.S. Pacific Standard Time stinks. Hey, wait a minute. Before we go any further, Jake, I think we need to clarify which units we're going to be using because a lot of our listeners practice in places other than the good old U.S. of A. So we'll be talking in grams per deciliter, if that's okay. But yeah, please note the units here. And a handy trick for anyone who's used to using grams per liter, just add a zero. Our seven becomes your 70. Let's jump into it, Jake, by first reminding ourselves that we have moved away from the so-called liberal transfusion thresholds. And this is not a political statement. It's just uh, (laughs) what we used to do for transfusion thresholds. And that meant transfusing People who had a hemoglobin of less than 10 grams per deciliter or 100 grams per liter. Less than 10. I'd never do that now. Yeah, yeah. Can you imagine? We see so much anemia both in, inside, and outside the hospital that I feel like when I see a hemoglobin of 10 <laughs> grams per deciliter, I'm excited. Woo-hoo! Now we generally wait to consider transfusion for a hemoglobin that is less than 7 for a lot of patients. And this is termed restrictive red blood cell transfusion. And please tell me, Jake, who is this threshold right for? Yeah, good question. It seems like for the majority of patients, actually, this restrictive transfusion has helped, obviously, tremendously with global blood supply, but it's also supported by patient-oriented data. Wow, okay. And I know multiple studies have shown similar or actually better outcomes with restrictive transfusion approaches in critically ill patients and various age groups. I'll admit, I imagine my poor little cardiac patients with their hemoglobin of 71 and, oh, makes me nervous. Yeah, and I don't think you're the only one that's skeptical out there. So let's talk about the data a little bit. We're mainly going to be considering adults with all this, but we'll talk about a few different groups when it comes to this. But that data that shows similar or often better outcomes with a restrictive approach That includes groups like people with upper GI bleeds, even. So there was a 2016 Cochrane review that looked at a number of different groups and is probably the best available evidence 
when you're looking at transfusion threshold. They found actually a decrease in the 30-day mortality when using a threshold of 7 as opposed to 9 for transfusion in people with upper GI bleed. Why is that? Reading through the guidance, what's postulated is there are a lot of harms that are associated with transfusions, and the clinical outcomes that we're aiming to improve when we're transfusing people maybe aren't that different when we're comparing, you know, 7 grams per deciliter to, to 9 grams per deciliter. All right, I can see that this data may be compelling for guideline writers and policy drafters, but as a community doc, it's making me feel just a wee bit uncomfortable. But because I'd like to follow the evidence, henceforth, for most hospitalized patients with anemia, including those with stable GI bleeds, those with sepsis, or those with multiple other acute medical conditions, I will be aiming for a hemoglobin of 7 if they are hemodynamically stable. So if you're thinking that 80 seems much more comfortable or 8 grams per deciliter, there are a few groups that 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 appears to be true with. The main guidance seems to come from the American Association of Blood Banks, the AABB, and they recommend using a hemoglobin level of 8 grams per deciliter as the threshold for transfusion in patients with stable cardiac disease, who of course are hemodynamically stable. So this is one of the outline groups where 8 seems to be the preferred level. And this recommendation is because there's evidence that the restrictive transfusion approach may actually result in an increase in cardiovascular events in patients with cardiovascular disease. Yeah, yeah, definitely. The data is actually a little mixed when it comes to patients with anemia in the setting of like acute cardiovascular disease, like specifically acute myocardial infarction. So that's interesting. That same 2016 Cochrane review that I mentioned earlier, they actually found that a restrictive approach resulted in a non-significant increase in 30-day mortality in patients with acute MI. Again, non-significant, but maybe a trend there. For this reason, the AABB does not make a recommendation for what to do in the setting of acute coronary syndromes. They're like, we're not going to weigh in here. Yeah, threw up their hands. It's up to you. Yep. Not my problem anymore. So another important potential exception to the hemoglobin of 7 threshold is in those undergoing orthopedic or cardiac surgery specifically. Mm, But not other surgeries. Yeah, you know, the question of whether other surgeries might benefit from this is still a question, partly because these studies have not been done. Yeah. So in light of this, the AABB recommends transfusion for a hemoglobin of eight or less in patients scheduled to have their orthopedic or cardiac surgery. The last group we should talk about is people with chronic anemia who happen to be in the hospital, maybe for that reason or for a different reason, right? And so somebody who's used to existing at a lower hemoglobin threshold for a long time, what do we do with that group? Yeah, and these people are quite adept at functioning at their lower hemoglobin levels for the most part. So the threshold in this group should be a hemoglobin level that's a bit lower, particularly in those with anemia of chronic disease due to kidney disease. So what does that actually mean in terms of a bit lower, Jake? Yeah, well, so the guidance here actually is is put together by a, a few groups, including the American Red Cross. They say, consider reserving transfusion in people with chronic anemia until they get to a hemoglobin of less than six 
grants I'm for I'm shaking my head here. <laughs> wow. And my eyes are bugging out. Wow. <laughs> yeah. This is, of course, if they're tolerating it from a symptom standpoint. And again, of course, hemodynamically stable. But the real focus should be on correcting the underlying condition that's causing the chronic anemia rather than transfusing them. And so if somebody's feeling okay, hemoglobin, even in the six to seven range, uh, they can avoid transfusion based on this guidance. They need their erythropoietin and iron transfusions, not their red blood cells. That's right. Wow. Okay, Jake. So to sum this up, restrictive transfusion is the way to go. It's the new normal. It's uh, what all the cool kids are doing these days. And this means using a marker of 7 grams per deciliter or 70 grams per liter as your transfusion threshold, 7. We should, of course, consider a higher hemoglobin target in those with cardiovascular disease and in those who are undergoing orthopedic or cardiac surgery. And also, we should consider a lower target in anyone who has chronic anemia. That's right. And so this is a good thing, right? Because blood transfusions are a precious resource. And so anytime that we can avoid this while not worsening outcomes is a, is a good thing. But once you've decided to transfuse, that's only the first step, right? There are some complications that you should be on the lookout for. So let's uh, quickly kind of run through a few of those so people can feel confident that once they've made the tough decision to transfuse, they know what to do should there be a complication. Transfusion complications. And we'll start by saying that transfusion reactions can be either immediate, and these occur within the first 24 hours, or delayed, and those, you see them, after 24 hours post-transfusion. Yeah, immediate reactions, uh, some people will call acute transfusion reactions. There's a bunch that fall into this category, and it's the things that we worry the most about. There are things like anaphylaxis, acute hemolytic transfusion reaction, transfusion-associated circulatory overload, or TACO, and transfusion-related acute lung injury, trolley, just to name a few. Okay, and let's have a look at these. The acute hemolytic transfusion reaction should be suspected if a transfusion patient develops a fever, if they have pain at the transfusion site, if they had that constellation of dyspnea, flank pain, hypotension, hemoglobinuria, or even you can see DIC or renal failure with this. You really don't want to miss it. No, no. And if it's suspected, testing should really focus on identifying that hemolysis. So you can do blood tests like testing for lactate dehydrogenase or haptoglobin. And you should also be testing for incompatibility. So you can identify the, the source of this. Treatment focuses on maintaining their urinary output. And so you do this through IV fluids often or IV diuretics concomitantly. Providing analgesia is important. And then sometimes these patients even need blood pressure support. So correcting hypotension uh, using pressors uh, might be needed. Hmm, they can get pretty sick. Let's move along to trolley or transfusion-related acute lung injury. And this should be suspected in someone that develops pulmonary edema and hypoxemia, and they can also become hypotensive as well. And in these patients, obviously, you want to rule out other causes that we can see with transfusion, like heart failure, because we've increased their intravascular volume quite a bit, or TACO as well. And also look for hemolysis and incompatibility, as we mentioned before, because that's an important one to think of. 
Yeah, treatment here is supportive. They'll usually eventually recover, and in the meantime, we provide respiratory support. And then on to TACO, which I will always remember, especially on Tuesdays. I'll <laughs> always remember to think of it then. And this is transfusion-associated circulatory overload, and it also presents as pulmonary edema. And you see it more often in our older patients and those who come into us with an impaired fluid balance already, uh, people like with heart failure. Yeah, it presents with dyspnea and cough and even sometimes signs of uh, heart strain like ST segment changes on the EKG or a chest x-ray showing an enlarged cardiac silhouette. And even on blood tests, like uh, elevated troponin levels might be present. The treatment for this includes diuresis and respiratory support, so they can get pretty sick. Jake, how about the delayed transfusion reactions? Yeah, so delayed transfusion reactions, remember those are the reactions that happen greater than 24 hours after that transfusion. They include things like delayed hemolytic reaction, alloimmunization, and fortunately, very rarely, but it can include graft-versus-host disease. Yeah, thankfully and fortunately, many of these reactions are avoided through our very thorough typing and matching processes that our blood labs do for us when we say cross and match one or two units or however many we think we're going to need. That's right. Thank goodness for our blood banks. Yes, thank goodness indeed. Summary. Jake, how would you sum up this conversation on transfusion therapy, the new thresholds and the common reactions? There's probably a lot of opportunity to protect the precious resource of RBC transfusions by adapting to these evidence-based thresholds, which for a lot of people is a hemoglobin of seven grams per deciliter and, you know, for select people, eight. So remembering that seven to eight is really your target as opposed to previous more liberal thresholds, you're in good shape and you're protecting patients from the potential complications of transfusions, but then also saving the blood supply for, for people who might really need it. Absolutely. And it's uh, part of our job is to be good stewards of the resources that uh, our patients have to help them out. So, okay. Listen, Jake, it's always a treat. So good to see you. And we'll see you again for another uh, trip down the hospital hallway to figure out how to do best practices in this aspect of our work. Thanks so much. Greetings all, we are trying something a little different here today on Right on Prime. Rather than a chat between colleagues and compadres, this is a solo piece. Let us know what you think of the format. Now, I'm not sure about you, but my medical school memories of learning about ovarian cancer were based around two main points. That its presenting symptoms were often vague and confused with perimenopausal or menopausal symptoms, and it was often picked up too late for therapies to be very effective. All rather depressing. And I remember being told that while it would of course be fantastic if there was a way to effectively screen for this disease so as to catch it early and spare women the devastating effects of late-stage diagnosis, no reliable method had really been found. Given nearly 20 years has passed since that point, I thought I would go back and revisit this topic to see where the evidence stands now. So let's start with an overview of ovarian cancer, insofar as what you need to know as a general practitioner, and then at the end, I'm going to look at some of the recent evidence regarding population screening. Background Ovarian cancer primarily affects postmenopausal women, with the majority of cases being epithelial cell cancers, 
and being diagnosed in women between the ages of 55 to 65. There are some more rare types of ovarian cancer, such as the germ cell forms, which can affect much younger women, but for the purposes of this talk, we are focusing on the more common epithelial cell form. And now for the scary stat that unfortunately has not changed in the two decades since I went to medical school. Ovarian cancer remains the most deadly of the gynecologic cancers, with a less than 50% five-year survival rate. About 10-15% to of cases are found to have a genetic link, with the BRCA or BRCA genes being the most common and widely heard of genetic culprits. However, there are other genetic links of concern, so remember ovarian cancer if you hear about a history of hereditary non-polyposis colorectal cancer, Peutz-Jäger syndrome, or PTEN hamartoma tumor syndrome. Hopefully, patients who have these issues in their family history will already be aware and have follow-up for them, but always double-check because you could identify people who need referral to genetics. Presentation This is where ovarian cancer plays its evil trick on us, both patient and provider alike. Early disease is quite commonly asymptomatic, and even the symptoms of late-stage disease are maddeningly nonspecific. So, like with many dangerous things that present vaguely, you need to be thinking about it in order to either diagnose it or preferably to rule it out. So here are some of the standalone or combination of symptoms that are commonly described on presentation for ovarian cancer. Bloating or increased abdominal size. Vague abdominal pain. Constipation. Nonspecific low back pain. Urinary symptoms. Early satiety. Fatigue. Night sweats. Now, if all of these symptoms were put together in someone who looked very ill, perhaps one of the first diagnoses to cross my mind would be ovarian cancer. However, if I had an otherwise well-appearing postmenopausal woman saying her abdomen was a bit bigger and she had back pain, it would be very easy to go down a different diagnostic pathway, as so many of my postmenopausal female patients will have these very same complaints and they don't have ovarian cancer. We also need to remember the perineoplastic syndromes that could further fool us or lead us astray like the Lazar-Trellet sign, where there's a sudden and marked appearance of multiple seborrheic keratoses, or cases of bowel obstruction from tumor mass or associated metastases. Speaking of METs, it is actually quite common for ovarian cancers to have already metastasized extensively by the time the patient presents, so you might actually be making the diagnosis during the workup for incidental findings of things like pleural effusions, liver or lung lesions, and significant ascites. Physical exam Not surprisingly, we're going to recommend a thorough physical exam for any patient presenting with these symptoms. But if your concern for ovarian cancer is high, don't be fooled by what might seem like a normal physical exam. Also, be sure to look out for those signs that we hear about during medical school but don't see on a day-to-day basis in general practice. For example, the left supraclavicular node and the sister Mary Joseph nodule. That's that node that appears in the belly button. Now, even if you are able to perform a gynecological exam on your patient with an empty bladder, and you did careful examinations of the vagina and the rectum to feel for any adjoining masses, it can still be really hard to detect ovarian cancer. So if you still haven't found a good explanation for the symptoms, you're going to want to order some investigations. Investigations. Depending on your patient's presentation, the exact labs might vary a wee bit, but it makes sense to start with a complete blood count, creatinine, an electrolyte panel, including that common perineoplastic player, calcium. And what about CA125, you say? Well, yes, in these patients, I would check the cancer antigen 125, otherwise known as CA125, because in 80% of ovarian cancer patients, this serum biomarker is indeed elevated. 
The best investigation for detecting ovarian cancer is a transvaginal ultrasound. And then after that, the patient's going to need CT scans or MRIs even to clarify if the disease has metastasized and to what extent. But by that point, you're going to have referred them on, probably to a gynae-oncology team who will focus on the staging and management of the disease, which usually includes a combination of surgery and radiotherapy. Screening. So this all sounds pretty dire, and I'm sure that you are like me and would be more comfortable knowing that there was a fairly foolproof way to catch this disease early on. Ultrasound and CA125 blood tests sound kind of ideal, right? Ultrasounds are considerably more accessible than CTs and aren't associated with radiation, and a quick blood test would be an awesome way to screen for disease. If only these things worked. Yep, bad news time. Turns out that the past two decades have not brought us any closer to a good screening test for ovarian cancer. In fact, the accrued evidence now shows even more clearly that ultrasound and CA125 levels just don't cut it. The Lancet published an article on screening by Menon et al. It was called The Ovarian Cancer Population Screening and Mortality After Long-Term Follow-Up in the UK Collaborative Trial of Ovarian Cancer Screening, or the UKCTOSCS, a randomized controlled trial. So these UK researchers enrolled just over 200,000 postmenopausal women between the ages of 50 to 74. The women were split equally into a no-screening group and a screening group. Those who were to be screened were further divided into two groups. One group underwent an annual transvaginal ultrasound, while the other group first underwent a CA125 blood test, and then, depending on the results, had either follow-up blood tests or then had transvaginal ultrasounds. They followed the women for a long time, with screening going on for an average of eight years. That's possibly up to eight transvaginal ultrasounds for these women. The authors then followed up with them for an average of 16.3 years regarding the primary outcome, which was death due to ovarian or tubal cancer. If there was a study that was big enough and long enough to identify a good screening test, this would have been it. Alas, the results for screening just didn't pass muster. Neither form of screening, multimodal with labs and ultrasound or transvaginal ultrasound screening alone, reduced the deaths from ovarian or tubal cancer in any significant way. The incidence of stage 1 cancers did increase by 47.2%, while the incidence of stage 4 cancers decreased by 24.5%, but the primary outcome of mortality due to ovarian or tubal cancer didn't change in any significant way. So while the blood tests and ultrasound might help us identify cases earlier, if the medical system doesn't have a reasonably priced and effective way of dealing with the disease, then the value of screening on a population level is reduced. Now remember, the authors are talking about population screening here. If your patient is having symptoms of concern, that is a whole different kettle of fish. You will need to investigate and follow up with them. But the evidence as it stands right now means that we do not have an effective method of screening for ovarian cancer in the general population. So what can we do? Well, we can educate our patients for one thing. Talk to them about ovarian cancer, assess their risk factors, And be sure to act quickly if they develop signs or symptoms of this rather relentless beast of a disease. Here's hoping that someone out there listening to this right now has already come up with a way of screening for ovarian cancer and they're devising the trials. And who knows, maybe by the time another 20 years goes past, we'll be screening all the women and there'll be much lower rates of ovarian cancer. Here's hoping. Rural Medicine Talks. So when I was a resident, I was working in the emergency room of a remote Canadian hospital, pretty small little one. It was my turn on shift in the emergency room, and so I picked up the next chart and saw that the triage note said, eight-year-old boy with bean in ear. 
And yes, you guessed it, his name was Jack. And this was the beginning of a very tall story. Once upon a time, there was a little boy named Jack. Okay, shut up now. Her name's Vanessa Cuddy. Continue. This seemed pretty straightforward in terms of chief complaints. I mean, there was no tympanic membrane digesting button batteries or magnets that were involved, so I wasn't too freaked out about it. So I grabbed the chart and went into the room, and there I saw a dad and a son who were chatting away cheerfully and comfortably. And the dad explained the history of what had happened. That morning, he had noticed that his kid didn't seem to be hearing quite as well as normal. And the dad was worried that maybe he had an otitis brewing because these had happened in the past. So he asked his son how he was feeling. And the kid said he felt fine, you know, had no complaints. But then just as they were sort of finishing up that conversation, the kid did say to dad, oh yeah, I forgot that yesterday I put a bean in my ear to see if it would fit. And it stuck. So... (laughs) The dad sort of looked at me, rolled his eyes, you know, shrugged, and we went on. So the kid looked totally well, except for this slightly decreased hearing in that ear. He had no fever, he had no complaints of pain, he was eating and drinking normally, although he did say it felt a wee bit funny in his ear when he chewed, but you know, it wasn't stopping him from eating. So then it was time to examine the kid and look in his ear. So the external parts of the ear looked totally normal, but there at the end of the otoscope, inside the external auditory canal, was a white bean. And it was stuck in there and it was completely blocking the canal. So the canal looked a wee bit swollen, sort of near the bean, but there was no significant redness or signs of any discharge. And I realized that there was no way I was going to be able to get this thing out with a curette as there was really no way around the bean to sort of get a purchase on it to pull it back towards me. But I wanted to see if it was mobile at all. So I did lightly tap it with a curette, but this thing didn't move at all. This bean was stuck. So that dad was very concerned about it being stuck and very concerned that we wouldn't be able to get it out because he knew that that would necessitate a trip to see the specialists. Now, where that place was, that hospital, it was at least a 10-hour drive to see a specialist. There would be a flight leaving the next day, but the dad was like pathologically terrified to fly and there was no way he was going to get in a plane with his son and he was the only parent and sort of grown-up available to escort his son, so they were going to have to drive if they were going to see a specialist. And to top it all off, they had just come back from a trip to the South to the pediatric specialist 16 hours drive away for a follow-up on the kid's chronic constipation. So this family had already done a lot of road trips. The dad was pretty tired. The dad reassured me and said, of course, he would do whatever he needed to do for his son. But I could see that he was exhausted and also, of course, you know, not particularly looking forward to another mammoth drive through the uh, Canadian taiga. I went to get my staff because I was a resident at this point in order to discuss a plan. I asked my staff to come and examine the patient as well, which she did just to make sure I wasn't missing some sort of option. And then we decided to try suction. Now, we decided not to go with just regular wall suction because we wanted something a little bit more precise. So we tried the dental suction. Now, in this hospital, the dental office was literally 10 steps down the hall from the emergency department room where the patient was being assessed. So that part was easy, you know, getting access to the dental office. The hardest part was figuring out the controls on the dentist chair. I mean, I swear at one point we almost had this kid airborne. But eventually we figured out the chair and we got the dental suction going and very, very slowly and carefully, we tried to suck out the bean, but no joy. Then we thought maybe we should try to flush it out. We figured that maybe if we could just get enough water behind the bean, sort of seeping around the edges of the bean, maybe it would dislodge the bean forward out of the canal just enough for us to suck it out. So we very carefully irrigated the canal and we're excited to see that some of the water actually did go around and you know, behind the bean, in between the bean and the tympanic membrane. 
And this was all great, and we were very excited. But then we were called to an emergent case, and we had to leave the patient. So about 30 minutes later, we got back to the patient who was still sitting in the dentist chair and had a quick peek into the canal. And we were really not happy with what we saw. Because now the bean had absorbed all that water and had grown quite a bit bigger. The canal was showing more signs now of pressure up against its wall, and the whole area was looking a little bit more red and angry. Luckily, the patient looked great, so I wasn't concerned about this patient suddenly crashing. There was no reason for him to crash, but at least overall, he looked good. So we used some, the dental suction again to try and dry out the remaining water in the canal, and then we called ENT for help. It was about 5 o'clock now in the afternoon, which is the worst time to call a specialist because they're usually in the middle of sign-over and I always feel terrible doing it. But they answered quickly and were super cheery and helpful. They said that they would have done everything we had done and that really they just needed to see the patient if we couldn't get it out. There really wasn't much other option. But bearing in mind the distance between the patient and the specialist, the time of day that it was now, and the fact that his family couldn't fly down for a clinic appointment tomorrow, I asked if there was anything else that we could do. The ENT staff said, well, sometimes we try using a little bit of skin adhesive on a Q-tip to sort of grab the foreign body and pull it out. Um, it can be tricky, he warned us, you know, and you have to be very careful that you don't get any glue onto the external auditory canal because then you could glue yourself to the ear canal. But it's definitely worth a shot, he figured in this case, and we did as well because it might spare this family a huge ordeal. So I said I would chat with the patient and the dad and see if they agreed to me trying this. And not surprisingly, really, they did. And so I got it all prepped. And when I say all prepped, I mean, it really, it wasn't very much. It was a cotton Q-tip and some skin adhesive. So, you know, tissue adhesive. I plopped a drop of tissue adhesive on the end and making sure not to get any on the side of the Q-tip because the ENT had warned me that it could get stuck. And I advanced the Q-tip slowly into the canal towards the bean. And where did that get me? Well, it ended up with the patient who had presented with a bean stuck in his ear, still having a bean stuck in his ear, but now that bean had also grown in size due to the water and also had a Q-tip dermabonded to it. And that Q-tip was now sticking out of his auditory canal in such a way that he could not lie down on that side. So now it was 6 p.m. and the bean was still stuck. In order to get it out under specialist care, the dad and son were facing a 10-hour drive to get to the appointment after only having just returned the day before from a 16-hour drive for an unrelated medical issue. I called the ENT back and he laughed kind of sheepishly and said, well, I guess I need to see him, so have him come to the clinic in the morning and make sure he doesn't lie down on that side. And I felt absolutely awful because of the situation that everyone was now in. But the dad and patient were amazing. They still win my award of my career for most patient family. And just chill and relaxed and kind. They took it all in stride. And the dad said, well, I'll uh, go grab the other kids and we'll hit the road now, knowing that the sooner that bean was out, the better. Before they left, we went to the ortho room in our emergency department and we took out a coccyx donut pillow and we taped it to the side of the kid's head. So it was kind of looped around the ear. The ear was in the whole part so that he could at least rest his head against the side of the car window and have a bit of comfort during the overnight drive without risking that the Q-tip would get pushed in further into the ear. So they did the drive, it went fine, and they went to the clinic the next day and they gave him a bit of procedural sedation while they cut out the Q-tip and then cut up the bean into little pieces and then gently irrigated the whole thing and took it all out. Amazingly, the tympanic membrane and everything behind the bean were fine, and there was just some residual swelling in the external auditory canal. 
So this was one of those cases where it's kind of exciting when you're in a rural or remote place and you think, oh, I'm going to get to MacGyver something and I'm going to come up with all these tricks and, you know, this could really solve the situation. And while I was very, very careful not to get the Q-tip stuck to the ear canal, it hadn't occurred to myself or my staff that we might have the Q-tip stuck to the bean, but then the bean would still be stuck. That's something to remember is that, yes, it's good to think outside the box, and sometimes some of our hacks can really save patients a lot of time, but always try and think through to that next step of what if this doesn't work? I mean, the ending was still the same for this patient in terms of he has still had to go south to see the specialist. He and his father perhaps would have been happier if they didn't have to have a coccyx pillow taped to the side of his head so that he could at least rest his head on the window in the car. But it was an important lesson. And then some other important lessons, some teaching points from this case. Beans and water lead to swelling. And I guess if you left them in long enough, maybe sprouting, but luckily it didn't take that long. Also really important to understand the patient's context. If the dad hadn't been terrified to fly, then he could have easily waited overnight and taken a flight the next day, and likely all would have been fine. But we really felt this pressure to fix it for the dad's sake, you know, to spare him this drive. And we just didn't think that all the way through. So remembering the patient's context, but also remembering that sometimes you might make the situation worse. And final point is that it turns out that those coccyx donut cushions have a lot of different uses. I don't know about you, but I worked out what was going to happen early on. I'm like, this has clearly got to be a story where they don't get the bean out and they make things worse. And when the cotton-tipped applicator was going in there, I'm like, they're not getting that out, are they? Usually what happens is that that glue does drip and then you've stuck the whole thing in there and you pull it out and it's, it's a mess. So the real teaching point from this is, one, stuff in the ears is really fun because you get to use a lot of different pieces of equipment. Two, sometimes in the little kids, you're going to have to sedate them or you're going to shove stuff through their tympanic membrane. You have to be very careful. It is very disturbing to have somebody shove things around your ear, so be very careful about that. Three, don't forget the alligator forceps. They can be very useful, and as the ENT did, sometimes you just have to nibble away at something and then you can irrigate it out. The next thing I would say was beware organic material like beans. The addition of water can make things swell up a lot. I can tell you from my own experience, I have done that and swollen things up so much I couldn't get them out. But this Q-tip dermabond and stick it on the foreign body and pull it out often works really well. And flushing the inorganic material often works very well. But I will say again, it can be quite disturbing to get these puppies out. And I do love that MacGyver part at the end where they're taking the coccyx pillow so that the poor kid when he falls asleep doesn't shove a Q-tip up into his brain. Genius. Cardi should write a book, Jack and the Q-tip Beanstalk. Oh, it'll be a huge seller. Huge! Once upon a time, a little boy named Jack stuck a bean in his ear to see if it would fit. Jack wanted to get it out. So he got a woodpecker and put Dermabond on its beak so the beak would stick to the bean and pull it out. But now the woodpecker was stuck to the bean which was stuck in his ear. So he found a dog to eat the woodpecker, but the bird got caught in the dog's throat. So the dog was caught on the woodpecker that was stuck on the bean that was stuck in Oh yeah. That's right. Chicka 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 chicka. Primary care medical abstract. With Ken and Steve. Well, welcome to the March 2022 episode of PCMA. I'm Ken Mill and joining me as always my co-host, my partner in this nerdiness. 
Dr. Steve Brown. Great to see you, Ken. I thought you were the co-host. You're my co-host. I don't know. I just know we're both nerds. I right. mean, that's I mean, that's basically what I know. <sighs> and we're all a little mad because this is March Madness time. And I'm not referring to basketball here. I'm referring to March Madness when it comes to the match. Right, March Matchness. Ah. Yeah, it's a fun and crazy time. And hopefully, good luck for everybody in it not being a, a crazy time, but a happy time. And so for those medical educators out there in residency programs and medical schools, and also for fourth-year medical students that are matching, we have our fingers crossed and hope March Matchness goes well for you. And we can't wait to meet each and every one of you. That's right. Well, we got 10 great papers to go through. Now, the papers themselves or the topics or some of the methodology might not be great. Like, you may not get the trifecta there, but there's always something great we can pull out of it and apply either to our practice or to our understanding of the topic. So I'm looking forward to these 10 papers. Yes. Paper one. Number one is perioperative mortality in bariatric surgery, a meta-analysis in BJS 2021. And we've talked, I don't know, many times about bariatric surgery on PCMA. It's a very effective treatment for severe obesity. Despite its efficacy, only a small percentage of people actually select this option. And one of the barriers may be concern about the risk of surgery. And the goal of this review was to update the perioperative mortality associated with bariatric surgery. So it was a systematic review and they followed the PRISMA guidelines to find 58 studies with 3.6 million patients. And these were newer studies. They were from 2014 onward. Now these studies had to include at least a thousand patients each. So that's one of the inclusion criteria. Now, overall... The mortality rate was 0.08, or 1 out of 1,250 patients. There was no statistical difference in overall mortality at 30 days, 90 days, or in-hospital mortality. Now, the lowest mortality rate is if you got a gastric banding. That was 0.03, and it was the highest if you got this duodenal switch thing. That was 0.4. Now, the mortality rates were similar whether the data came from randomized control trials, large observational studies, national databases, or registry. So this is really reassuring and updates our previous mortality rate that people had been quoting to be about, you know, 1%. Wow, that might scare me off surgery. You know, one in a hundred chance of dying. Now, they did exclude the randomized control trials from the primary analysis, if they had a low patient number, so small trials were excluded, so we don't have to deal with this crappy little studies or CLSs, and if they had extremely low event rates for mortality. Now in this, there's also a potential lack of external validity of this analysis to broader patient populations getting bariatric surgery outside of some kind of study environment. This mortality risk of 0.08 is like the quoted 0.1% mortality, like one in a thousand, for the risk of laparoscopic operations like cholecystectomies. They did not report on any other harms of surgery besides mortality in this study, and the surgical risk must be weighed against the risk of, well, not getting surgery, 
And we know there's serious medical conditions associated with severe obesity. I mean, losing a large amount of weight is not just about, hey, lowering your mortality rate, but it can also improve your diabetes, your arthritis, and your overall quality of life. Yeah, I thought this was a really helpful study, and I think it, I'll use it to quote to my patients the risk of mortality, because I had definitely had that 1% in my head. A few caveats which you mentioned. So certainly you would, could have selection bias, whether either the people signed up for the studies, they might be you know healthier than the average population. Also, someone might choose a certain surgery depending on what their risks are. And so this could all influence mortality rates and, and comparisons. And also, these are published studies. So if you were a surgeon who had higher death rates, you probably wouldn't publish. And so <laughs> that, that makes, might make it less generalizable. And so I think it would be helpful to know somebody, to know someone in your community that's doing them and that they're you know, reliable surgeons and maybe have, hopefully, I know that these are not necessarily public, but they should be, what are complication rates from each surgeon? So I think that's the main thing is these studies probably mostly go on in academic medical centers. So how generalizable is it to the community? Yeah. And it's not necessarily about the exact number, but to be off by an order of magnitude when talking to patients, you know, 1% versus 0.1%. Okay. It's probably somewhere in there. And also if you're that one person that has the mortality, that's eh, pretty clinically important. Right? So there always are potential risks or potential harms to anything we do in medicine. But I at least like to see this number going down because we do know that the benefits are pretty significant for patients experiencing severe obesity. Bottom line. Bariatric surgery has a low reported perioperative mortality rates similar to other laparoscopic operations. Paper two. Paper number two, the safety and immunogenicity of concomitant administration of COVID-19 vaccines and seasonal influenza vaccine. It's a randomized controlled phase four trial published in Lancet November 2021. And I've had multiple patients ask me this. Can you get a COVID vaccine and a flu vaccine at the same time? We're in that season and, you know, obviously in a global pandemic, we're giving lots of shots and we're recommending lots of shots. So you should definitely be getting your hashtag Fauci ouchie, but also remember hashtag no flu for you and wanting to avoid flu symptoms in a times when our hospitals could be overwhelmed with COVID patients. So maybe we could give them at the same time, but might that cause more side effects? So these authors in the United Kingdom designed a multi-center randomized trial in which 669 patients were randomly assigned one-to-one -to, -one to receive either an age-appropriate flu vaccine or placebo alongside their second dose of COVID-19 vaccine. And they had both the AstraZeneca and Pfizer vaccines, which have really long names with lots of, they look like a password, you know, like capital C, lowercase h, a, lowercase d, o, x, one. So we'll just say AstraZeneca and Pfizer. And so there were six groups that combined the two COVID vaccines and three different influenza vaccines. And three weeks later, the group that got placebo got the influenza vaccine and vice versa. They followed the patients for six weeks. Both the investigators and the patients were masked to the allocation. And the primary endpoint was one or more participant reported solicited systemic reactions. So that's when I say to you, did you have a side effect or reaction? 
And this is seven days after the first vaccination. And then they, it was a non-inferiority trial. So they considered a difference of less than 25% to be non-inferior on an intention to treat basis. They also looked at blood tests to assess the immune response. And so the results were that solicited systemic events in all groups were basically 70 to 80%. So lots of people had side effects. That's expected. I certainly had a side effect from my third COVID vaccine, but there was no difference in the various cohorts. So most of the side effects were mild to moderate. Both groups had them, whether they got a flu shot and a COVID vaccine at the same time. They also looked at immune response for COVID, which was equal in all groups, and the immune response for flu, which was equal in all groups at six weeks. So everyone, regardless of whether you got it separately or together, had the same immune response. And that's obviously a surrogate outcome. And so we don't know hospitalization or death from COVID or flu. These results are highly suggestive that we can proceed with both shots simultaneously to try to make this crazy time just a little bit easier. One of the things that jumped out at me is that they did use an intention to treat analysis for their primary analysis for a non-inferiority study. And the more conservative approach would be to use a per-protocol analysis. But I want to reassure people that your nerdy friend is here for you because I went to the supplemental index and found on, I don't know what, page 26 of this secondary PDF that it didn't really change the outcome. So, you know, whether they ran it through a per protocol or through a intention to treat analysis. They did set their target fairly large, though, of a delta of 25%, expecting 50% of people to have symptoms. But I'm going to say, who cares? Like, we're talking short-term, transient side effects, and everybody has a different perception of what they consider severe. But, you know, fever, chills, runny nose, diarrhea, right? But did you die? So yeah, I'll take some fevers, chills, runny nose, uh, diarrhea for a day. Yeah, so I've seen pictures of doctors getting flu vaccine in one arm, COVID vaccine in the other arm. So go for it, everybody. Bottom line. Giving COVID and flu vaccines at the same time is safe and produces an appropriate immune response. Paper three. Abstract number three. Initial treatment with a single pill containing quadruple combination of quarter dose of blood pressure medicines versus a standard dose monotherapy in patients with hypertension. The quartet trial. All right, well, hypertension, this is something we're always talking about on PCMA. And it can be a real challenge to get people down to a targeted number with monotherapy alone. And we've seen combo pills for years. The aim of this trial was to see if a combo pill containing not two, not three, but four <laughs> doses of antihypertensives, would it be more effective than monotherapy? What do you think? In controlling high blood pressure. So they recruited adult patients 18 years of age and older with hypertension who were treated with monotherapy or were untreated at the time. It was a multi-center, double-blind, parallel group, randomized control trial in Australia. You were randomized to this quad pill. So let's go through what's in this quad pill. Well, they've got an ARB. They've got herbisartan at 37.5 milligrams. They've got a calcium channel blocker, amlodipine, at 1.25 milligrams. Indapamide, 0.625 milligrams. And a beta blocker, 
bezoprolol at 2.5 milligrams. So that's the quad pill. Those are the four drugs. And then they have a monotherapy treatment of herbisartan at 150 milligrams daily. Now, if the target blood pressure was not achieved in either of the two groups, you could add amlodipine 5 milligrams. The primary outcome that they had was a systolic blood pressure at 12 weeks. So you already know that they're gearing this up for a monitor-oriented outcome. Secondary outcomes included was the blood pressure controlled, safety, and tolerability. So they recruited almost 600 patients. It was done in Australia, like I said, so they had 82% white, 60% male, and 59 was the mean age. The primary outcome, the systolic blood pressure, was about 7 millimeters of mercury lower at 12 weeks if you took the quad pill versus the monotherapy. Three quarters achieved this target blood pressure in the quad pill compared to 58% in the monotherapy. And 15% of the quad pills and 40% of the monotherapies required additional blood pressure medication to achieve their target. And their target was 140 over 90. So you didn't have to add an extra 5 milligrams of amlodipine that often with the quad pill, but you did with monotherapy. There was no statistical difference in withdrawal for adverse events, although it was more in the quad pill. And there were more serious adverse events in the quad pill but again, these weren't statistically significant. So this was no big surprise coming to me going, oh, wow, four different antihypertensive medicines decrease the blood pressure more. And I understand they were quarter doses, but, you know, starting people on four different treatment modalities, I would have expected them to reach that target dose more often. That lower blood pressure is a monitor-oriented outcome or a moo and not a patient-oriented outcome, a poo. It would have been better if they had a all-cause mortality or even a composite outcome of MACE events, but this would not likely be different at three months of outcome. Now, they did, they did extend the trial for a subgroup of people who agreed to stay in this and have their blood pressure monitored at 12 months, and it showed similar results, but again, probably not long enough if you're evaluating a therapy, a medication that's expected to be taken not for years, but sometimes decades. It also should be noted that the lead author and senior author are investors in the company that applied for a patent for what? What do you think they applied a patent for, Steve? The quad pill. Whoa, you're knocking me off my chair here. What a shocker. And uh, the lead author is also employed by the company. Now, I know we are saying this in a certain tone, so let me bring this and dial it back a bit. Let me bring this back and just say, listen, that doesn't make the data wrong but it does make me more skeptical of the results and their interpretation. Yeah, that I love the disclosures. <laughs> like, we're trying to pitch this medicine and here's our study. But kind of impressive number needed to treat five to achieve blood pressure control at 12 weeks. This kind of reminds me of the sprint trial a little bit because there was a number needed to harm for extended follow-up of people discontinuing the medication, 29 at one year. So I think it's sort of just in the same pattern of what we've been talking about on PCMA for several years now. More control of blood pressure will lead to more side effects, more medication withdrawals. I don't know what it would take to get a medication like this approved in Canada or the US, but it's kind of cool. It's kind of cool that they thought of this. It's kind of cool that it, it sort of like takes it to the next step, you know, do we do one med? Do we do two meds? Do we start someone on a high dose, a low dose? Let's turn them on a low dose of everything. 
combined. Why don't we throw in a statin <laughs> and a little aspirin and maybe a little sertraline in there too? I was going to say an antidepressant. You got to throw an antidepressant because you just told them they had high yeah. blood pressure, so they're depressed. Yeah. Well, you're going to love my bottom line then, Steve. Ready for this? Yes. Bottom line. It often takes multiple antihypertensives to treat high blood pressure to target. But we do not know if a combination pill will ultimately be better than prescribing a la carte. Paper four. Abstract number four is peppermint oil treatment for irritable bowel syndrome, a randomized controlled trial, November 2021 in the American Journal of Gastroenterology. And if you're thinking, sigh, another randomized controlled trial for peppermint oil and irritable bowel syndrome, I am also... And I apologize that this study is not going to answer the question, but actually is, I think, super interesting to talk about. And I think this might be, you know, Ken and I know each other pretty well now after <laughs> recording this for years together. I think we might disagree on this. So spoiler alert for the end. We're going to see. This will be interesting. Yeah, exactly. Fight. So the American College of Gastroenterology actually in their 2021 guideline has a conditional recommendation for oral enteric-coated peppermint oil for irritable bowel syndrome with a number needed to treat of three for overall IBS symptoms and four for abdominal pain. It's conditionally recommended because it's based on low-quality heterogeneous evidence. And if you don't have the natural medicine database, I highly recommend that you get it. I'm not sponsored by them. I do not have a vested interest. But if your patients come in and say, I'm taking XYZ over-the-counter natural medicine, the natural medicine database is a great evidence-based place to look. And they actually say that it's likely to be effective for irritable bowel. Several clinical trials and meta-analyses show that taking enteric-coated peppermint oil one to two capsules orally three times daily reduces abdominal pain, distension, flatulence, and bowel movements in patients with irritable bowel syndrome. The studies are generally short-term no more than 12 weeks. And so the authors talk about how, you know, the studies are not that good. They're only up to 12 weeks. And then they conduct a study that's not that good. That's only six weeks. So not sure what they were thinking here. Six weeks, randomized, double-blind, placebo-controlled trial, single academic medical center in the United States. To answer the question, randomization was one to two. So more in the placebo group. They used peppermint oil capsules, brand name Pepogest which has 180 milligrams of enteric-coated peppermint oil, which is similar to what the Natural Medicine Database talked about. The placebo capsules contained soybean oil and soft gel capsules and were specifically designed to match the peppermint oil in size, shape, and appearance. And remember, Ken, that paper that we talked about, placebo and who designs the placebo and all that. My guess is that people knew when they were taking peppermint because they did not try to match the taste. So that might be interesting also. Primary outcome was mean change in the IBS SSS score, which is a validated tool, baseline to six-week endpoint. Those scores range from zero to 500. And enrolled patients had a score of greater than 175, which is considered moderate to severe. And then here's a, a major challenge to the generalizability. They recruited patients from advertisements on public transportation, newspapers, direct mailings to patients, and then also referrals from healthcare professionals. So you might, so I don't know if those are the same people that are going to show up in your office with irritable bowel syndrome. And then, okay, so let's look at results. 
Another fundamental flaw of this paper, only 65% of the peppermint oil group and 81% of the placebo group were followed through to the end of the study. 17% of the peppermint group withdrew due to adverse effects versus nine for the placebo or number needed to harm 12 for withdrawing. And the most common side effects, belching and reflux, but at least the burps smell really good. <laughs> Not like fish oil. It had a minty kind of smell. Exactly. Exactly. <clears throat> mm. And so both groups improved by 90 to 100 points, which shows a really strong placebo effect. So they started out at over 175 and basically could have their symptoms even in the placebo group. 70% in both groups had at least a 50-point reduction and 30% in both groups had at least a 150-point reduction. That was a post hoc analysis, but no difference. So the authors conclude more rigorous trials are needed. Yeah, we're so not going to do them, but uh, yeah... Exactly. crazy, eh? You know, they start off in their introduction, we need more rigorous trials. So they don't conduct a rigorous trial and go, hey, guess what? More rigorous trials are needed. <laughs> right. So this study really doesn't add anything to the literature on peppermint oil for irritable bowel syndrome. And so please, if you're a researcher, please do not do another study on peppermint oil for IBS unless it's truly the definitive randomized control trial. So now here's where Ken and I might disagree. Peppermint oil costs $10 for 90 pills. It may be worth trying, even if it's just to give your patients the placebo effect. All right. So let's see. Let's, let's unpack that a bit. First part about the cost. I don't care about the cost until I know whether it's efficacious. So if it works, then we can discuss whether or not it's worthwhile financially to invest in that. The second point you made was maybe, and I agree, it may be, uh, maybe not, right? So I, I can get along with that wishy-washy sort of thing. And what was it? What was the third point you made? What was the last point? I mean, if you can get a placebo effect from a medication and you can legitimately claim that some resources like the natural medicine database say that it might be useful, then I know you've said before, you can't, it's not ethical to just give people medicine and say, this is a placebo. But if, yeah. even if this study says it isn't, which is not a good study, then because of the fact that some studies say peppermint oil is better than placebo, it's probably okay to use, even if it's just giving you a placebo effect. It didn't work as well as the placebo, interestingly. More people discontinued in the treatment effect, and they had more side effects, more adverse events, 48% versus 31% in the active treatment group. Part of it, again, unblinding. And the authors state that they knew the smell and taste of peppermint oil could be detected by patients. So they recognized that blinding was going to be an issue. And so why didn't they ask the patients which group they thought they were allocated to? That would have been so easy to add one question. I mean, you're giving your subjective outcomes. It's not that probing. I mean, we're already asking, well, what were your bowel movements like? Are you farting enough? <laughs> Are you belching enough? I mean, I don't think it's being too intrusive to say, and which group did you think you were allocated? And, and if there was an unblinding and an unmasking of it, this really goes against it because the bias would have been to say, I feel better, you know, in the active treatment group. It would have also maybe uh, biased towards reporting more adverse events and more discontinuation too. I disagree with the author's conclusions about further larger rigorous trials of, you know, 
my conclusion would be no. <laughs> the study does not support the efficacy of peppermint oil for IBS. It's a placebo effect and stop throwing money at this idea and let's do real research and find real answers for people who are suffering from IBS. Bottom line. Peppermint oil may have a small benefit for irritable bowel syndrome symptoms compared to placebo, but this study does not help us know for sure at all. You know how to slip that bottom line with the may in there. I love it. Okay. <laughs> may or may not. May not. <laughs> Paper five. Abstract number five. This is colorectal cancer screening with repeated fecal immunochemical test versus sigmoidoscopy. Baseline results from a randomized trial, Gastroenterology 2021. The third leading cause of cancer death for both men and women is colorectal cancer. And so the aim of this trial was to compare the effectiveness of sigmoidoscopy and FIT testing or fecal immunochemical testing for colorectal cancer screening. This trial was conducted in adults 50 to 74 years of age in Norway. People were invited to participate and be randomized into once-only flex-sig or FIT screening every second year. Now, after the flex-sig, if they found a polyp that was, you know, 10 millimeters or greater, if they discovered three or more adenomas, any advanced adenomas, or colorectal cancer at the time, or if they had a subsequent FIT that had a large amount of hemoglobin per grams of feces, a colonoscopy was recommended. The primary outcome in this screening thing was the detection of neoplasm and harm. So they enrolled almost 140,000 Norwegians. The participation rate was 52% for getting the sigmoidoscopy, 58% for getting one fit, and actually two-thirds of people, 68%, for three fits. And the main results were the three fits were best. It detected more colorectal cancers and more advanced adenomas than a single fit, but also more than getting a flex sig. And you look at the serious adverse events, they were reported in 0.05% of the flex sig group compared to 0.07% in the fit group. So they were pretty much the same. Now this trial had one of Steve's favorite limitations, and he already told us about it earlier on in one of the previous abstracts, healthy volunteer bias. Because who's going to sign up for this, right? It wasn't all comers consecutive. It was, again, they went out and tried to recruit patients into this. And so we're not exactly sure how this healthy volunteer bias would have affected these results. It did demonstrate that Norwegian adults are more likely to have repeat fit tests than getting a sigmoidoscopy. This strategy detected more colorectal cancers and advanced adenomas with similar serious adverse event rates. However, the more patient-oriented outcome will be their planned 10-year mortality data. And it would be great to have high-quality data demonstrating an all-cause mortality benefit to the FIT process rather than the more painful sigmoidoscopy approach. I mean, I'm more fit for the FIT than I am for the SIG. But the U.S. Preventative Service Task Force gives a level A recommendation for screening adults 50 to 75 years of age for a variety of strategies. 
And I'll list, I think they've got a half a dozen strategies for doing this. So I'll list those strategies in the show notes. Yeah, so so Ken, I got to give you my bias here. This is a fit test stand account. Yeah. So, and, and I think you've said before, the best kind of screening test is the kind the patient will do. Yeah, so, if you're not screened, it's hard to pick it up. Yeah, and I think the thing that was, I don't think it's really news that fit is as good as a flex sig. Maybe this doesn't compare so well to U.S. populations, which mostly aren't getting the flex sig, but getting colonoscopy. Colonoscopies, yeah. I did think it was interesting that to achieve basically full sensitivity, you need three tests. So three tests years apart. So one of the ways that FIT is designed is that it's not perfectly sensitive. It's certainly more sensitive for bigger lesions, but that you're really not totally screened until you've had three of them. And so I think that's a good thing to counsel our patients on. Bottom line. Use some shared decision-making to ensure your patients who qualify for colorectal cancer screening get screened by one of the available methods. Paper six. Paper number six is the efficacy and safety of adalimumab in conjunction with surgery in moderate to severe hydradenitis suppurativa. This is JAMA surgery, November 2021, and we'll call hydradenitis suppurativa HS from now on. And so the question is, is it safe to perform surgery on patients who are also being treated with immune modulators? And Ken, you know how great the database is for PCMA and and right on prime. And I hope you all search when you have questions, but we have not done a single paper on hydradenitis suppurativa. So I thought that would be useful to talk about. There is a quick review on our board review program, Crunch Time. So if you want to get a little review on HS, go to Crunch Time. I'd like to explain that bias, a potential explanation for that bias. The harder the things are to pronounce, the less likely we will be to cover it. <laughs> Thank, That's right. Like I'm I, like, every time I see one of these new MABs, I'm like, oh. <laughs> right. <laughs> so speaking of MABs, adalimumab is a tumor necrosis factor inhibitor. It should be considered for patients with moderate to severe HS. This disease, I'm sure you all have patients. It's very debilitating. It leads to recurrent abscesses fistula scarring, it can be very challenging for patients' quality of life. And the pioneer RCTs, which were published 2016 in the New England Journal of Medicine, showed that this medicine has a number needed to treat four to seven for clinical response, which is 50% improvement at 12 weeks. So brand name Humira, medication Adalimumab, pretty good evidence, and it's actually been approved. We'll talk about the cost a little bit later. But Patients with severe HS often need surgery, and wide excision is basically curative. And so these authors studied wide excision with secondary intention healing. And so the question was, if a patient's on adalimumab, is it safe to do surgery? And the theme for this month, the authors have extensive ties, including direct payments to the company AbbVie, which are the makers of the brand name Humira. So the authors conducted the SHARPS trial, Safety and Efficacy of Adalimumab for Hydronidinitis Separativa Perisurgically, Randomized Double-Blind Placebo-Controlled Study in Conjunction with Surgery, 45 Sites, 20 Countries, 206 Patients Age 18 to 65, the mean age was 38, 
moderate to severe HS that required radical surgery in axillary or inguinal region, but then they also had to have disease in other regions also. They were randomized to receive continuous adalimumab, 40 milligrams, or placebo during pre-surgery for 12 weeks, perioperatively for two weeks, and postoperatively for 10 weeks. And the primary endpoint was the proportion of patients achieving clinical response across all body regions at week 12. This is a 50% improvement. So probably we couldn't quibble about whether that's a patient-oriented outcome. That's a really big improvement. We're not just talking about a few points on a scale. So adalimumab, 48% clinical response versus 34% in across all body regions at 12 weeks, number needed to treat seven. No increased risk of post-operative wound infection, complications, or hemorrhage. So the authors conclude there's no need to interrupt treatment with adalimumab for surgery. So what you're saying is the long list of authors with financial conflicts of interest say, keep giving this expensive drug that costs thousands of dollars. Is that? That is correct. Yes. The cost effectiveness, unclear. It's at least $5,000 per month in the US per GoodRx. And and I don't want to laugh about, you know, the, the price because obviously... Some internal research has probably been done saying this has, you know, 50% reduction in these horrible, horrible condition, right? What are people willing to pay? What will the market bear? And I wish it wasn't like that. I wish it was, listen, you have a horrible disease and we've got an effective treatment. And while we need to sustain our business model, we don't need to get stinking rich doing it. The other part of it is, I think that there is a marketing component to all of this because they had, what was it, 48, almost 50 sites to find 200 patients. So, and, and then you look at the list of the authors and, you know, these site authors, right? These people that participate will be part of the authorship and stuff like that. That means each site is getting about four patients. And so it's almost like marketing. Hey, well, you know, sign up to do this clinical research with us. You'll get a publication out of it. Your patients will get this drug provided to them, so they'll be happy for this part. But then you'll get comfortable with using this drug, and then we'll publish this, and you'll be published. And look at now we've had 20 countries, 48 authors. I'm wondering if this is coming more out of the marketing department than of the scientific research department of these companies. Totally fair. And you'll be super surprised to know, Ken. In fact, this was published in the Journal of Surprise... (laughs) (laughs) Congressional investigation found AbbVie has repeatedly raised prices and exploited the U.S. patent system. Bottom line. Adalimumab is probably safe to continue if a patient has surgery for a hydradenitis separativa. Paper 7. Abstract number 7. Medical cannabis or cannabinoids for chronic pain, a clinical practice guideline in the BMJ 2021. Here's a downer of introduction. Life is pain. Yeah, that sounds very dark. Oh, is that what you tell your children, Steve? (laughs) You know, I've told them life isn't fair, but can you imagine sitting them down? They're seven years old. I just want to tell you, Ethan, life is pain. (laughs) The old man grabbed me and said, hey, smoke up, Johnny. Uh, But some of us will develop chronic pain, and that can lead to a lot of suffering. So... They were trying to figure out what role medical cannabis or cannabinoids have for people with chronic pain. The guideline was formed from an international panel, including patients, clinicians, and methodologists. 
They use the grade criteria to create the guidelines. And then the evidence to support and inform the guidelines came from four systematic reviews on the topic of medical cannabis or cannabinoids for chronic pain. And they made one weak recommendation. So from a reviewer's standpoint, it wasn't like, oh, and we had 27,000 recommendations. They had one and it was weak. And it was, quote, offer a trial of non-inhaled medical cannabis or cannabinoids in addition to standard care and management, if not sufficient, for people living with chronic cancer or non-cancer pain, end of quote. Now, the rationale that they gave for making the weak recommendation was because of the high value chronic pain sufferers place on a small to even very small improvement in pain, intensity, physical functioning, and sleep quality, while at the same time a willingness to accept a small to even moderate risk of mostly transient harm. While many people do suffer from chronic pain, so it's certainly reasonable to look at non-opioid alternatives to address this issue, my concern did go up when reading this article when I saw one of their international expert clinicians was a chiropractor. And I'm not doing an ad hominem attack. It's just based on knowing that chiropractors are not known for their rigorous adherence to science-based medicine. I was also concerned that they said it applied to both adults and children living with moderate to severe chronic pain. And so they're applying the results to children And yet they also say all the eligible trials were in adults and recognize the potential neurocognitive harms of cannabis use in adolescents. The guideline does emphasize strongly, which I like, the importance of shared decision-making. But this guideline is in contrast to the NICE guidelines. Oh, it must come from the UK if they're called NICE. Very polite guidelines. The very NICE guidelines. NICE. Anyways, the NICE guidelines does not recommend cannabis-based medicines to manage chronic pain. This series of the BMGA rapid guideline is super cool. The visual summary is incredible. I highly recommend you look at this. It shows you very quickly what the results are. The short-term harms are substantial. And I love how they talk about how the value, and you mentioned this earlier, Small improvements in pain, intensity, function, sleep quality, and willingness to accept a small to modest risk. So they lay right out that this is one of the things that we considered when we made this recommendation. I really also like how these guidelines are made rapidly. So I'm not going to tell you what guideline it is that I'm on right now, but I'm on one guideline that is taking over five years to develop. So that's obviously ridiculous, which is why I'm not going to tell you what guideline it is. You'll hear at some point, but the fact that they can look at the evidence and make this decision quickly is really useful. And then the visual summary is absolutely gorgeous. Yeah, I'm glad you highlighted the infographic because the infographics for this are really, really good summaries of the data that they present. And and it's just so well visually laid out. You can click on the link to this paper in the BMJ and that visual graphic will come up for you. And it's, it's really worthwhile. Bottom line. Consider non-inhaled medical cannabis or cannabinoids for chronic pain if standard therapy has not been sufficient. I like what you did there. I can throw in the may and you can throw in the consider. (laughs) Yeah, I I, I tried to avoid the may at all times, but 
I thought, oh, consider. Yeah, there we go. I love when guidelines tell you to consider something and you're like, that's why I'm reading the guideline. Because I'm looking for some guidance here, people. Right. <laughs> Paper eight. Abstract number eight. Associations between maternal depression, antidepressant use, pregnancy, and adverse outcomes. It's an individual participant data meta-analysis from Obstetrics and Gynecology 2021, October. It's really hard to help patients decide how to treat depression during pregnancy. And I don't think there's going to be anything in this that is particularly surprising, so I'll go through it kind of quickly. But we know that pregnancy is a really challenging time for patients with depression, and patients ask about stopping their antidepressants when they're considering pregnancy or when they find out that they're pregnant. And we know that depression is known to be associated with adverse pregnancy outcomes, postpartum depression, decreased quality of life, and there may also be an association with antidepressant use and low birth weight, preterm birth, and low APGAR scores. So these authors performed a patient-level meta-analysis from studies that looked at associations of depression, depressive symptoms, use of antidepressants during pregnancy, and looked for gestational age, birth weight, small for gestational age, and APGAR scores. They looked through all the databases that we would hope that they would. And the results were that they found 215 articles, over 400,000 pregnant patients derived from 27 databases. They found that depressive symptoms, a clinical diagnosis of depression, and antidepressant use during pregnancy are, at most, weakly associated with low birth weight and small for gestational age. They present the numbers in odds ratios, which I don't find super helpful for primary care clinicians. So just to get our bearings, the absolute differences are also quite small. For example, preterm delivery with a diagnosis of depression is around 15% versus no depression, 11.5%. So that implies an increased harm of one per 30 pregnant people from being depressed. But there's going to be a ton of confounders with that, like socioeconomic status, patients who've been racialized. So while it's associated, it's, it's hard to know if it's the depression alone that's the association. They did observe a higher risk for fluoxetine and sertraline, so we probably already know that that's not our first choice for our pregnant patients with depression. Just to tell you the odds ratios real quick, there is an increased risk of preterm delivery with a clinical diagnosis of depression. Odds ratio is 1.6. Low APGAR score, odd ratio 1.5. Preterm delivery risk for depression who do not use antidepressants, 2.2. And so the authors conclude with some caution because they know that it's a mild association and that this is not an RCT, so they can't tell you that. With a patient with clinical diagnosis of depression during pregnancy, you should probably treat it. So this doesn't really give us the definitive answer to the fundamental question, which is how should I treat a pregnant person for depression? And the answer is probably that you should treat or offer shared decision, but this article doesn't really tell you that. Uncontrolled depression is certainly a risk factor, but like I said, it's very hard to tease out social determinants, societal factors like increased risk for certain minoritized populations, especially here in the U.S. Yeah, I really like what you're saying. Pregnant women get depressed and they deserve proper treatment. And that proper treatment can include antidepressants. And it should take place in a shared decision-making model 
because everyone and every pregnant patient is different and they'll have different risk tolerances. Bottom line. Depression and antidepressants are associated with an increase in poor pregnancy outcomes. Paper nine. All right, this is my final paper, abstract number nine. Guideline review. Screening for chlamydial and gonococcal infections update, evidence report and systematic review for the U.S. Preventative Service Task Force, JAMA 2021. So this is an update from the task force 2014. So eight years ago, they put out some guidelines and some advice on screening for gonococcal and chlamydial infections in adults and adolescents, including those who are pregnant. So they searched for randomized control trials and observational studies of screening effectiveness for the accuracy of risk stratification and alternative screening methods, accuracy of the test itself, and screening harms. Outcomes were complications of infections, infection transmission or acquisition, diagnostic accuracy of anatomical site, specific testing, and collection methods, and finally screening harms. So in this update, 27 studies, 180,000 people, to answer four questions with moderate level of evidence. So all of these questions were answered with moderate level of evidence. The first question, question number one, what's the effectiveness of screening in reducing complications of infection and transmission or acquisition of disease, including gonorrhea, chlamydia, and HIV? So I just threw that HIV, you know, that was in the end of this one. Chlamydia screening compared with no screening was significantly associated with reduced risk of pelvic inflammatory disease in two of four trials. Remember, they had 27 trials to answer all these questions. Only two of four trials were able to look at this, and they said that this reduced hospital-diagnosed PID. Now, it was tiny, 0.24%, 0.38%. So we're looking at small little numbers. Second question, accuracy of risk stratification methods or alternative screening strategies. They found seven fair quality studies of just over 90,000 patients showed accuracy comparable to extensive criteria in asymptomatic women 22 years of age or younger. So that's question number two. The third question they had was the accuracy of anatomical site-specific testing and collection methods. So where are you getting the sample? And how are you collecting the sample? They found nine studies, and they looked at anatomical sites, and six studies looked at collection methods, showing all sites were accurate except for oral, for men having sex with men. So that was the only site that wasn't really accurate. The fourth and final question, hey, what about the harms of screening? And that was false positives and false negatives were low, regardless of the site or method. And so the task force gives a B recommendation to screen sexually active women 24 years or younger for GC. And so this provides more evidence to the task force to consider when making these recommendations. That's what's happened in the last eight years. There is potential for selection bias because some of the studies were conducted at STI clinics. I don't work at an STI clinic. Some days I may feel like I do. But no, most days I'm not working at an SDI clinic. Or some of the data came from other high-risk clinical settings. 
This could impact the diagnostic accuracy of screening because, of course, the prevalence would be much higher. There is limited information on men and no published studies on pregnant women. So the data is silent. And so we have to extrapolate. Let's see, screening trials focused on PID and epididymitis as their primary outcome, while potential more patient-oriented outcomes like fertility, chronic pelvic pain, ectopic pregnancy were less likely to be recorded. And this level B recommendation from the task force is like other recommendations that you'll see from the CDC, the AAFP, that's the American Academy of Family Physicians, ACOG, and the American Academy of Pediatrics. I forgot what your mnemonic was for B. Is it you should be doing this? Be doing it, yeah. A, you better consider the <laughs> B, you better be doing it. <laughs> I think C was, eh, consider it, and I is, eh, I don't know, insufficient evidence. And D is don't, yes. So sexually active women, including pregnant persons, B for chlamydia, B for gonorrhea, and I, which is, eh, I don't know, like I think is the Dr. Mill mnemonic for that one, in sexually active men. And then they do list what are the women over 25, what are the factors for the increased risk for women over 25. So that's worth looking at too. Bottom line. Young, sexually active, asymptomatic women should be screened for gonococcal or chlamydial infections. Very meta, wasn't that? (laughs) Love it. Paper 10. Paper number 10, last and certainly not least, Evaluating Clinical Trial Outcome Reporting Practices, Journal of General Internal Medicine, April 2021. And we don't often call out the authors of these studies, but I want to give a shout out to Dr. Merenstein, family doc at Georgetown, and also a medical student, Megan O'Leary-Kelly, who I met, who alerted me to this paper, who's going into family medicine and presumably matching as you are listening to this. But she was a co-author on this study, and I thought it was absolutely genius. And we've talked about this before on PCMA, and so I thought this would be a really good way to bring it home. But someone basically looked at the systematically reporting primary and secondary outcomes compared to what's in clinicaltrials.gov, and I thought the way that Dr. Marenstein and colleagues designed this was very clever. So we've talked a lot about authors reporting something different in the final paper than what they started out looking for. And these shenanigans can really make your outcome seem a lot more positive. It's like moving the goalposts once you've actually kicked the ball already. Or actually coming up with goalposts, you know, because sometimes (laughs) they, they didn't even mention these as outcomes and, oh, there are some goalposts. We got it. Nicely done. Yes. So these authors picked the most recent 25 consecutive randomized control trials from December 2019 from four big journals, New England Journal, JAMA, BMJ, and The Lancet. And they compared the published primary and secondary outcomes to what was registered in clinicaltrials.gov. And they decided if the outcomes were correctly reported, which is they matched, or incorrectly reported, and that they didn't match. And they really gave the authors a break because they let the authors change the outcome as long as they explained it in their results or their discussion. So you will not be surprised to hear the results of this, Ken, because you will be shocked. 100 published trials, 73 had correct reporting of the primary outcome, and 23% of the secondary outcomes were properly reported. 
So not even one in four properly reported the secondary outcomes. And so you might wonder like, what were the discrepancies that came from the secondary outcome? Most commonly, they were addition of new outcomes. So just like Ken said, we invented a new goalpost. The primary outcome discrepancies often occurred when researchers omitted pre-specified outcomes. No, you're not allowed to win money for guessing whether they looked more positive or negative based on omitting. There was basically no difference between those four journals. And so the authors conclude, this is a quote, transparency regarding outcome changes must be enforced and a future discussion regarding what is deemed acceptable justification for such changes is warranted. And so my question, Ken, is, are you kidding me? How can journals let authors get away with this? And is it possible, I know this will be a shock to you, that authors and journals both benefit from studies being more positive? The authors here did not look at whether there's a difference between positive or negative studies, or if the pharma funding made a difference, but I'm pretty sure that you could guess what it is. And so, so Ken, you have definitely taught me to consider secondary outcomes with a grain of salt, and this really reinforces that. Yeah, I'm trying to think of a new NNTNNH sort of thing. I don't know if NNF, number needed to fudge, is the right <laughs> term. But when you've registered the trial and you go through the hoops, right, this was supposed to solve some of the problems in publication is by, oh, you need to register in advance. As you said, three quarters of the registered was what they said, and one in four wasn't, right? So this goes back to the journal, and I think this is a core part of the journal review process. Simply have someone on the journal go to the trial registry and make sure that the primary and secondary outcomes are aligned as stated. That would not be very hard. I know for sure that shouldn't fall on the readers. I mean, the readers have us, you know, us skeptics out there to help you, but that shouldn't fall to the readers to do that. There should be that quality control in there. The peer reviewers, you get what you pay for. And oh, that's right. They pay them a nice round number, zero dollars. Now, I think that's zero American dollars. I think with the exchange rate, that still works out to zero Canadian dollars. So, you know, for this, I know that they talked about some of the solutions and stuff or suggested ways to address this. I'm part of a group that think it should go one step further. I think if you want to be published, especially in these high impact journals, if you want to be published, you need to submit your protocol to the journal with the question and the methodology. And if the question is important and the methodology is sound, the journal decides yay or nay on publication before any data has been generated. So if it's a good question and you got great methods, super, we'll publish that a priori. We agree to that before the data is collected. And then once the data is in, you submit it for publication regardless of the outcome. And I think that this could really mitigate publication bias and some of this stuff that goes on. Bottom line. Authors frequently report different outcomes than the one they use to design their studies, and this should not be tolerated by the scientific community. Wow, I think that last paper, Steve, was my favorite. Mine too. I'm so glad you picked it. 
All right, well, that finishes the March 2022. So March Madness will be over by the time we are recording the April issue. Hopefully everybody is staying safe and staying skeptical. Talk to you next time. Okay, Adrian, it's time for the summary, or as baseball fans like to call it, the final inning. We're in the bottom <laughs> of the ninth. Is that what it is? Yeah, that's a decent baseball reference. She's a natural. First up, we have PCMA. PCMA, Article 1. All right, so the first article that Ken and Steve reviewed was Perioperative Mortality in Bariatric Surgery, a Meta-Analysis. It was from the British Journal of Surgery in 2021. So this study was a systematic review looking at perioperative mortality in bariatric surgery. There's lots of patients included, over 3.6 million patients. They found a mortality rate of 0.08, so that equates to about 1 in 1,250 patients. The study found that gastric banding was associated with the lowest mortality, and this procedure called the duodenal switch procedure had the highest. I've never heard, have you ever heard of that procedure before? Nope, but I wouldn't mind trying out somebody else's duodenum for a while. <laughs> I don't think they switch people's duodenums. I don't <laughs> oh, think. Oh, they don't shoot. I didn't, <laughs> maybe. I don't know. Whatever it is, this duodenal switch procedure has the highest mortality. So take that for what that's worth. Okay. The Ruan Y procedure actually had a similar mortality rate to gastric banding, which is pretty low. Now, prior mortality estimates from bariatric surgery was about 1%. So this study shows a much lower risk of mortality. And they say in the study that it's actually a similar mortality rate to a lap cholecystectomy. Good to know. Moving on to paper number two. This is in Lancet, November 2021, and it is titled Safety and Immunogenicity of Concomitant Administration of COVID-19 Vaccines with Seasonal Influenza Vaccines in Adults in the UK. And Adrian, I know you, like me, have gone for a lot of vaccinations in the last couple of years and Mm -hmm. have tried to orchestrate a lot of vaccinations for a lot of family members. And I have a little bit of vaccination fatigue. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because no matter how well-intentioned I am and how important I believe all of these are, it's really just complicated to make and attend multiple appointments for multiple people for multiple vaccines. Would you agree? I agree. I've just had to take my kids for their shots, and then my wife had her booster, and we're also a little baby, so we're organizing his childhood vaccines as well. So yeah, there's a lot of vaccines going around. There is, there is. So any study that says to me, hey, we can give people two vaccines at the same time and we can give it to them safely, I say, good on you, people who decided to do the study. Mm-hmm, that's a win. This one's very reassuring. People don't keel over from side effects from having the two at the same time. Do people mount an immune response to both the COVID vaccine and the influenza one? Yes, they do. So in my mind, this is a good study. And now we can get our COVID and influenza shots at the same time. So article number three was initial treatment with a single pill containing quadruple combination of quarter dose of blood pressure medications versus standard dose monotherapy in patients with hypertension or the quartet study. It was in Lancet from 2021. It's a bit of a mouthful of a title, but I also like the title because it kind of gives you everything you need to know right there. You know, I like when they do that. So this study looked at whether combining four different low-dose blood pressure medications together would be better at controlling blood pressure than monotherapy. So this was a double-blind randomized controlled trial of adults with hypertension who were randomized to receive a combination of herbisartan, amlodipine, indepamide, and bisoprolol at low doses 
versus standard dose herbicidin. So there's almost 600 patients included in the study, and not surprisingly, the patients who got four different blood pressure medications had better blood pressure control at 12 weeks, which was their primary outcome. And so yes, prescribing combination blood pressure medications appear to be better at lowering blood pressure, but does that actually translate to patient-centered outcomes like cardiac disease? Well, this study doesn't really address that question. Okay, paper four, Peppermint Oil Treatment for Irritable Bowel Syndrome, a randomized placebo-controlled trial in the American Journal of Gastroenterology in November of 2021. And, you know, I have yet to meet a person with IBS for whom peppermint oil works. I understand there is some RCT data suggesting that it can work, but when I put my real-world anecdotal data and I add that to the results of this RCT, well, it makes me less excited about it actually playing a role in IBS. And in this study, the people who took the peppermint oil were more likely to drop out of the study due to side effects, including minty fresh burps and GERD. And I don't know, but I think if you already have irritable bowel syndrome, you probably would not be too excited about having reflux on top of that. So I don't think that based on this study, peppermint oil really seems to play a role in irritable bowel syndrome treatment. And I agree with Ken and Steve that there's really no need for further study on this. Article 5 was colorectal cancer screening with repeated FIT versus sigmoidoscopy. It was from Gastroenterology 2021. So this was a randomized controlled trial of 50 to 70-year-olds in Norway. Patients were randomized to either a one-time sigmoidoscopy or FIT screening every second year. And the primary outcome that they were looking at was detection of colorectal cancer. So they enrolled a total of 140,000 patients, and it was a pretty even split between the sigmoidoscopy and the FIT group, about 70,000 in each group. So repeated FIT, that means three total tests, but every two years, actually picked up more colorectal cancer and advanced adenomas than the one-time sigmoidoscopy. However, this particular paper looked at diagnosis of colorectal cancer as a primary outcome, which, as Ken and Steve know, is not a patient-oriented outcome. Paper number six, efficacy and safety of adalimumab in conjunction with surgery in moderate to severe hydradenitis suprativa, the SHARPS randomized control trial in JAMA surgery, November 2021. Hydradenitis is a really terrible condition with not only its large dermatological impact, but also a big impact on a patient's overall well-being. In adalimumab, a TNF inhibitor is one of the treatment options, as is wide excision of problematic areas. But is it safe to do the latter to patients who are taking the former? And the answer here is yes. And overall, it looks like there's improved results with adalimumab versus placebo in achieving hydradenitis clinical response across all body regions at 12 weeks. The actual NNT in the study group is seven. That's pretty impressive. Next article was Medical Cannabis for Chronic Pain, a Clinical Practice Guideline from BMJ 2021. So this was actually a clinical practice guideline about the use of medical cannabis. And they had one recommendation in this article. And it's a weak recommendation, but they say, and I'm going to quote here, to offer a trial of non-inhaled medical cannabis or cannabinoids in addition to standard treatment for patients living with chronic cancer or non-cancer pain, end quote. So the authors basically say that even a tiny improvement in pain and functioning or sleep is worth it for patients who are living with chronic debilitating pain. Paper 8, Associations Between Maternal Depression, Antidepressant Use During Pregnancy, and Adverse Pregnancy Outcomes, an Individual Participant Data Meta-Analysis in Obstetrics and Gynecology 2021 in the month of October. 
And I think the key word in this title is associations. It's important to note that that's the word, not causation, because the study did show that maternal depression is associated with low APGARs and preterm births, and also that antidepressants are independently associated with the same. So I think there's a couple important things to point out here beyond the fact that it is association, not causation. The first thing is that depression can be treated with more than simply medications. There's lots of other options. Medications play an important role for many. But let's not forget to explore the other options that could be equally efficacious in a mild, maybe a moderate depression. And also, number two, let's please remember that a treated depression is better for overall maternal and child health than having a mom who has a crippling depression. Bear that in mind when you look at the study. Article number nine was screening for chlamydial and gonococcal infections, an updated evidence report and systematic review from the U.S. Preventative Services Task Force, the USPSTF, and this is from JAMA in 2021. So this is a quick one. It's basically an update to the 2014 USPSTF guidelines for gonorrhea and chlamydia testing. And basically the one-liner here is young sexually active patients should be screened for gonorrhea and chlamydia. Mic drop. Paper 10. Evaluating Clinical Trial Outcome Reporting Practices in the Journal of General Internal Medicine, April 2021. And Adrian, as the great Steve Brown once said, you can't move the goalposts once you've kicked the ball. And yet study authors do this all the time. And this is absolutely fascinating research. It looked at the four big journals, ones that we cover a lot here, BMJ, New England, JAMA, and The Lancet. And ask the question, did their published primary and secondary outcomes match the ones they registered back when they planned the trial? Or perhaps did they tweak these primary and secondary outcomes to fit their data? And the study looked at 100 articles in these journals. In 73% of the cases, there was correct reporting of their primary outcome but only 23% reporting of the secondary outcome. So that is quite uh, stunning and quite shameful, actually. If you're going to do the research, do the research you set out to do. Don't change your goalposts after you've kicked the ball. Shame on you. Shame. Shame. All right, next up, we have Reviews and Perspectives. It's Reviews and Perspectives with Dr. Hobart Lee. So on uh, Reviews and Perspectives with Hobie, it was on farm reps. I really like this one. And it was some really interesting stuff here. So first off, there's an association with interactions with the pharmaceutical industry and poor prescribing habits from physicians. So things like inappropriate prescribing. Also, it's been shown that doctors aren't great at distinguishing scientific material from industry-sponsored material. And then the thing that I found really interesting was that we all feel like we're not affected by it. When in fact, studies actually show we all most certainly are affected by it. The Generalist. So in The Generalist, you and Jake had some really useful pearls about transfusion medicine, specifically about transfusion thresholds. So for the majority of patients, a restrictive transfusion strategy of less than 7 grams per deciliter appears to be beneficial compared to a more liberal strategy. For patients with stable coronary artery disease or those who are about to undergo orthopedic or cardiac surgery, we should probably be using a threshold of eight grams per deciliter. And then finally, a threshold of six for patients with known chronic anemia and are relatively asymptomatic from an anemia perspective. So in terms of acute transfusion reactions, meaning transfusion reactions that will happen within 24 hours, the common ones to look for here are anaphylaxis, 
the feared acute hemolytic reaction, tacoed, and trally. The delayed reaction, so greater than 24 hours later, can include things like delayed hemolytic reactions, alloimmunization, and then rarely graft-versus-host. Ovarian cancer screening. Ovarian cancer screening. This piece reminded me that not much has changed since Vanessa and I went to med school in the 2000s. Ovarian cancer remains a disease that is tricky to diagnose, often first presenting with symptoms in late in its development. And unfortunately, we do not yet have a reliable screening test to help pick this disease up at a stage at which we can actually modify outcomes by treatments. Maybe someday someone will come up with a good screening test that we can use to save lives. Rural Medicine Talks. And a rural medicine. This is a great case about a bean that is stuck in an ear. I think it really should be turned into a graphic novel, Adrian, don't you? Absolutely. Yeah, totally. You could just, every frame would be a different stage in the treatment, right? You had the bean in the ear, the first frame, then Vanessa looking in the ear, then trying each thing. And then the bean just keeps growing and then the bean stalk comes out and eventually there's a golden goose at the top with the egg. Yes, definitely graphic novel. What I liked about this is that the humble alligator forceps ended up being the hero of the story. So definitely, no matter how sophisticated all of our tools are, always have a pair of alligator forceps handy and don't hesitate to use them. Okay, Adrian, that wraps up another fun-filled month of Right on Prime. Well, it's been great being here with you, Heidi James. And before we go... I wanted to remind you and all of our listeners to check out all the other offerings in the MRAP universe. We have so many. Yeah, there's the HD videos, which are fantastic. There's the ICU fundamental course, EM and Family Medicine Crunch Time board reviews. Uh, What else? There's just so much CME, but I think the big one to mention is the MRAP One conference, which is happening in LA next month. Join us in person if you haven't registered, please do. And also remember that you can stream it as part of your MRAP subscription if you can't join us in L.A. Well, listen, thank you so much for joining us, everybody. And we will see you back here next month. And until then, keep doing what you do. Because what you do matters. Matters.